I want to invite you to open your Bible with me to the Old Testament book of Ezra. We're going to be looking at chapters 7 and 8, uh, particularly focusing on Ezra chapter 7 this morning. And so if you're looking for that in the Bible that's there in the pew rack in front of you, you can find this on page 466. To, to remind you of, of where we are on the timeline of history, the people of God, the nation of Israel, had been destroyed because of their own sin, exiled to Babylon. But in these opening chapters of Ezra, we have seen in the previous weeks, they have returned to the land by the power of God himself. They rebuilt the temple according to God's instructions. And so the book of Ezra offers hope to God's people, hope to his church, that God's purposes still stand. God has reclaimed his people. He reclaims the promised land. God proves himself faithful. And now as we turn to chapter 7, we finally meet the man for whom this book was named, Ezra. Because Ezra returns to the promised land, and he shows us the centrality of the Word of God in the life of God's people. And so even as we turn to God's Word to read, we're reminded that to be a follower of God, to be a Christian, means to be a people of God's Word. And so listen as I read. I'm going to read uh, portions of chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Ezra chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Merioth, the son of Zehariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king, he had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. And in verse 7, we learn that Ezra was sent at the command of the king Artaxerxes and given a letter. And so jump with me now to verse 25 of Ezra chapter 7, as we read the conclusion to the letter that the king, the king of Persia, sent with Ezra. Ezra chapter 7, verse 25, and you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God. And you are to teach anyone who does not know them, Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must be severely punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. 
because of the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. In chapter 8, we find the people listed, the journey completed by the power of God. And so let's come now to God in prayer. Father in heaven, I ask that as we have read your word, that you would apply it to our lives. Lord, that we would be people who are quick to listen to your word, understanding that you are the one who has spoken to us. Lord, that we would be people who are quick to apply your word, that we would be willing to obey you, even when it seems difficult. Lord, that we would be quick to rejoice in the hope of the gospel. So, Father in heaven, we come asking you to work in us. Lord, we thank you for our friends and neighbors who have gathered with us today. Perhaps they are here to inquire about the truth of your gospel, and so, Lord, I pray that they would hear the truth and that you would give them the faith to believe. Lord, for those that come today in the midst of suffering and pain, I pray that you would provide, provide them with relief. Lord, that in turning to Jesus Christ, we would find hope that lasts through the darkest days of life, that lasts even beyond this life, into a perfect eternity with Jesus our Savior. And so, Father in heaven, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen. The news story from Pennsylvania earlier this month was disturbing. A woman allegedly drove her car into oncoming traffic as a test of her faith in God. Nadja Riley had been driving around for several hours, the news report says, waiting for a calling from God when she decided to take action into her own hands and drive into an oncoming vehicle. She told the state trooper that God took care of her by protecting her from injury. But the trooper's report notes that she expressed no concern for the two victims in the car who were injured when she hit their car. They were taken to the hospital and treated for their injuries. Now, I'm sure there will be more details that emerge in this story as she will be forced to respond to the legal charges rightly filed against her. But it's a tragic story. She drove her car into oncoming traffic so that she could hear the voice of God. Now, the story is the type of story that prompts strong reactions. An online commentator, someone who identifies as an atheist, this, this atheist wrote, religion, it's brainwashing. It's instilled from a very young age, and so it makes it difficult to discern actual truth because our minds naturally assign truth value based on prior information. See, in responding to a story about a woman who claims to hear the voice of God, which leads her to drive into oncoming traffic, this atheist says, yeah, that's the problem with trying to listen to God. You'll do stupid things. Uh, another commenter who, who explains, I used to be a Christian, but I'm not anymore, wrote, stuff like this terrifies me. Christianity treats, or teaches people to treat intrusive thoughts as if they were messages and orders from on high. You, you see the complaints, which in many ways aren't really, they're not difficult to understand. I mean, the story is, is almost so nonsensical 
that a woman was driving around desperate to hear from God, and so she thought, if I, if I do something big and dramatic, then I will have a calling, a purpose. I will have a significance. I will hear the voice of God. And so there are complaints that religion leads people to do dangerous things, that stuff like this terrifies me. Their complaints make, make sense. Because Nadja's religious compulsions, her desires to hear from God, led to a dangerous and tragic decision. But maybe the problem isn't only with Nadja. I mean, the complainants are actually saying the problem is deeper. The problem is with Christianity as a whole. Maybe the desire to hear from God always leads people to do crazy things. Perhaps that's your concern this morning. Not your concern getting out of the parking lot today, but your concern that the decisions that people who claim to follow God make are always irrational. They can't make sense because they're listening to a voice that doesn't exist. Or, or even if these concerns don't cause you to reject Christianity, maybe it still raises troubling questions for you. How would I know what the right thing to do is? Like, how do I figure out what's right from wrong? How do I know my calling? Maybe you wrestle with some of the questions that, that Nadia wrestles with. Now, don't take her actions. Or maybe you wrestle with questions like, how could I dis- discern the voice of God and differentiate it from just my own inner monologue? How do I know if it's God speaking to me or it's just some, some idea in my own head? Or maybe the questions are just basic questions. Like, what am I supposed to do next with my life? See, and as we turn to Ezra chapter 7, we face similar questions. How do the people of God know what to do next? How will they discern the calling of God on their lives? And, and perhaps the same objections continue to linger as we, as we read this passage. Doesn't claiming to have access to God's Word make people deluded at best, or even worse, dangerous? Because as we turn to Ezra 7, we, we're finally introduced to the namesake of the book. The book is called Ezra, written by Ezra. But chapters 1 through 6, they, they covered a period of about 100 years in history, And from the end of chapter 6 to the beginning of chapter 7, we actually jump ahead almost 60 years. And so it's been more than 150 years since the people of God returned to the promised land. And now finally, we're meeting Ezra. And these final chapters of this book, which we'll look at this week and next, really only cover the period of about a year. And so who is Ezra? How do we answer these questions about about God's Word, about having access to God? I mean, chapter 7 begins with a a genealogy, a list of Ezra's ancestors. He is the son of Sariah, and and as as you run through the list, you get down in verse 5 to its conclusion point. Now, commentators will point out that if you, that if you run through this, that, that some of these are grandfathers or great-grandfathers, that there are, there are generations that are skipped because the, the point is theological. This isn't an Ancestry.com family tree. This is to make the theological point in verse 5 
that who is Ezra a descendant of? Well, verse 5, he's the son of Aaron, the chief priest. Aaron, a name who, who would be familiar to you from Sunday school, the brother of Moses, the first high priest, the one chosen by God to bring the sacrifices of the tabernacle to God. And so Ezra is rightly descended from the high priest. But, but, but Ezra's genealogy is put here not, not, to, not to exalt Ezra. I mean, in some sense, reading this, this genealogy is a reminder of God's faithfulness. The, the genealogy shows us more about God than it does about Ezra, partly because it skips generations, so you're, you're missing some of the grandfathers in the line here. But remember that, that the people, all of these people, were part of generations that were sinful and rebelled against God. Even Aaron, the, the, the high priest, the one chosen by God, rebelled against God. And so this, the, the reminder of, of Ezra's genealogy is a reminder of God's faithfulness. It shows that God is faithful to his people even when they rebel. God had not abandoned them. And you see, what, what, is, what are we being reminded? God provides access to the forgiveness of sins. I mean, why was Aaron sent to be the one who would bring sacrifice? That's the purpose of the priest, to mediate between God and men, to shed the life of an animal in Old Testament law instead of the lives of God's people. And so God is proving himself faithful. And so Ezra is a priest, but, but more than that, we learn in, in this chapter. Look at verse 6, that Ezra... This Ezra, the one who is descended from, from Aaron, this Ezra came up from Babylon. And how is he described in verse 6? He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And so how is Ezra described? Well, he's a priest, we know, because he's a descendant of Aaron, but he is a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses. He's one who has studied the Word of God, the law of God. He knows that it's been given by God. And, and you see here, there, there's a claim here in the book of Ezra that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. The law of God is the law of Moses. But it's not merely a, a claim about the, the human author, the Mosaic authority, the, M Moses as the, the pinnacle of a, of a prophet sent by God, but but it's not merely that Moses wrote this book, who is the true author. Well, verse 6 emphasizes it. That Ezra, a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. I mean, there's a divine authority to the Word of God, to the commands of God, to the, to the, the Word that is written down for us. And so Ezra is described as one who is well-versed in the law. He understands it. He has studied it. He has devoted his life to it. Literally, the, uh, and, and Hebrew scholars, I, I needed to turn to confirm this, but, but Hebrew scholars, they, they say that that word, that he is well-versed, it literally means quick, that he, he quickly turns to the Word of God. He quickly applies the Word of God. He quickly looks to the Word of God for answers. He is well-versed. He, he is quick with God's Word. And maybe then that forces a question upon us. 
we who claim to be Christians, who claim to be people of the Word, where are you quick to turn for answers? I mean, do you, when you need an answer, hey, Google, and you get an answer from a device, how can I help you, Kevin? Hey, Siri, order me some paper towels. Let's see what you all get today. Yes, I've turned on some of your phones. Because so many of us are so quick to turn to a, a, why does this device capture so much of my attention? Well, one, it's, it's conveniently portable, so I can take it everywhere. I left it in my car yesterday for a few minutes, and I felt helpless. Somebody asked me a question, and I was like, I left my phone in my car. But it's tragic in some ways. I mean, it's a great device that, that if I were to be lost, I'd be able to find my way home. If I needed to get hold of you with something important, I'd be able to, to reach out to you. And so it's a, it's a beautiful device, but it's, but it's tragic in another way how much of my meaning and identity is tied up in this thing. This thing which might be the last thing I touch before I fall asleep and the first thing I grab for in the morning. I'm quick to turn to it. My, my 10-year-old is nodding eagerly in anticipation that someday he will have one of his own. And yet, where are we quick to turn? Do we turn to God's Word? And maybe for you, you think, well, well, I'm glad Kevin's picking on people who have smartphones because that is not my problem. But maybe you just pick up an old phone because you have somebody that when you're in need, you, instead of turning to the Word of God, you are quick to run to someone else. When you have a, a juicy bit of information, you're quick to, to share it and spread it as gossip. Or maybe it's just that you always have something playing in your house. It might not be a device this small. Maybe it's a, a radio or a television, and there's never any silence in your life. My, my children will lament that, that I often have a podcast playing because what will be left in silence to, be, to take a few minutes and open God's Word. I mean, I could do things that, that seem much more important to me than that. See, where are we quick to turn? Do you turn to your phone? Do you turn to your friends? Do you turn on your TV instead of to the Word of God? And yet, what is, what is this chapter telling us? That the Word of God has authority in our lives because it is divinely given to us by the prophets of God. And, and notice how, how Ezra's life, he's described as one who is quick to turn to the Word of God, but, but, but jump down now with me to, to uh, uh, further on in the passage, to verse 10. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to its teaching and decrees, to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. See, do you see what this is saying? Is Ezra wasn't just reading it just to, like, get through it. He wasn't reading it so that he'd be better at a Bible quiz. He wasn't reading it merely for informational purposes. Why is he reading it? Why has he devoted himself to the study of God's Word? So that he can observe the truth of God's Word so that he can put it into practice. Because perhaps you've walked in here today and you think, I, I, my, my problem isn't so much with God or with his word. My problem is with the people who claim to follow after him, who say all these right things, all these noble things, all these moral things, and yet they don't live like it. 
And yet, for Moses, to be quick to turn to God's word also means he is quick to observe the commands given by God. He orders his life by the teaching of the word because it is the very word of God given to him. And then then verse 10 says, not only does, does he live it out, his life devoted to the word his life concentrated on the Word. Not only does, does he live it out personally, but what does he do with it? He gives it away. He teaches it to others. I mean, it's a, it's a simple paradigm to study, to practice, to teach. I mean, for those of us that are leaders in God's church, those are pretty simple instructions but would make a significant difference in the health of Christ's church. If we, as those who were given authority over God's people, studied the Word of God, obeyed the Word of God, and then taught the Word of God. But really, that's a a pattern for Christian discipleship, for, for following after Jesus as a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Study, practice, and teach. That's why you need to be serving in junior church and Sunday school. Because when you study God's Word, you'll then be forced to practice it. But then once you teach it, you realize, oh, there's so much more I needed to learn. You get asked a question by a a, a six-year-old, and you think, boy, I'm a lot older than that, and I've never thought of something that profound. Or they just ask you a simple question, and you realize, I don't know the answer. I need to figure that out. But I don't only mean that you should be teaching in Sunday school in formal settings, but I, I I mean in the discipleship that takes place relationally in community groups. If you are studying God's Word and practicing it, when somebody else comes to you with, with this is the need or the struggle, then you will be quick to turn to God's Word and teach it to them. Not in a formal setting where you're recognized as a teacher, but just in the setting of this is what it looks like to follow after Jesus, to study, to practice, to teach. That's an effective pattern for our lives. See, God's Word has authority because it comes from God. God's Word has power because God is continuing to work through His Word. Notice the way in which this passage keeps pointing back to the work of God. Yes, we see that King Artaxerxes is used to to give the people returning to the land what they need. We see that Ezra is raised up as a leader, but, but the passage repeatedly is pointing us back to the fact that God's Word has power because God is continuing to work. Look at the description again in verse 6. The king of Persia had granted Ezra, everything he asked for. Why? At the very end of verse 6, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. God is continuing to work on behalf of his people. It's repeated for us in verse 9 that Ezra had begun his journey. They completed it quickly and without without any, any dangers or delays along the way. Why? The end of verse 9 tells us, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. See, God's Word has authority because it comes from God. God's Word has a power because God continues to work through His Word. And so we are called to be people who, like Ezra, listen to the Word of God, respond to the Word of God, and then teach others this Word. And yet, even as we try to do this, even as we're encouraged by the the powerful reminder of God at work through His Word, We know that we fail. We know that there are so many times I reach for other things that I'm quick to turn to to other places for answers rather than God's Word. And even when I'm quick to turn to God's Word, I know that my own heart 
even if I know the right thing to do, well, the not right thing to do seems like it would be better for me now. So even when we know the word, we don't obey the word. And so then we hesitate to speak about it because we, well, we shouldn't tell others if we're not going to be honest about it in our own lives. See, even, even the simple pattern of, of reading God's word, obeying God's word, and teaching God's word exposes our own failures and sinfulness. See, and all throughout the book of Ezra, this emphasis on God's action is a reminder to us that we need God's intervention in our lives. We need God to step in and do something on our behalf. That's the, the reminder that comes through the, the sacrifices, the temple having been rebuilt in the book of Ezra. It's the reminder in, in, in coming chapters of this call to, to radical obedience in following after God. We need God's intervention on our behalf. And that's what, what the Bible offers to us. Because we're, we're not merely people of the book of Ezra. We're the people of the, of the Word of God, the whole story of God. And so when we turn in the Gospel of, of Matthew to the New Testament, we, we find at the arrival of Jesus, Jesus affirming his belief in the power of God's Word. In his temptation, what does Jesus do when the devil tempts him with, with all the pleasures and power of this world? Jesus quotes the Word of God. Now, the irony there is every word that Jesus speaks is the Word of God, for he is God in the flesh. But what does he do? He gives us a pattern of what's it look like to live in obedience. What's it look like to, 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 to deny temptation? It means to quickly turn to the Word of God, to follow the pattern that Ezra had given. And then as Jesus begins his ministry, he begins to preach, he quotes from the Scriptures. He opens God's Word and says, this is what God has said, it's, it's being fulfilled in your midst. And then we turn in, in Matthew chapter 5 to the most famous of Jesus' sermons, his Sermon on the Mount. We have Jesus' explanation of what the, the Old Testament was meant to do, of what God's law was meant to do in the lives of his people. In Matthew 5 verse 17, Jesus says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. See, Jesus is saying the, the Old Testament, God's word, it has authority and power. He says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And don't you see how this then is good news for those of us who can't fulfill God's law? Those of us who hear the word of God and disobey. Those of us who hear the word of God and obey and obey and obey and then disobey. For we all turn away from God, and yet Jesus fulfills the law for us. See, that's your hope, that you come not, not trusting in, in, in saying, God, look at what I have done. I have accomplished all of these things. No. Remember, Ezra is a man of the word, one who comes to declare this is the word of God. But what is his other function? He's a priest, one who comes to remind the people, as you bring your sacrifice, as the blood is spilled, you are not righteous. You are not good before God. You are a sinner. You are evil. And so we need Jesus to fulfill the law for us, to obey when we could not obey. And that's, that's the, the, the argument that the New Testament makes repeatedly. You can turn with me to Romans chapter 10, just, or Romans chapter, yeah, Romans chapter 10, just to see one place in which the Apostle Paul explains that we are made right with God, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. You see, we're, we're restored into fellowship with God, not because we can obey always, 
but Jesus has already obeyed for us. In Romans 10, the apostle has, has already explained through the, the early chapters of this is that we are all sinners and that Jesus Christ died for us. And in Romans 10, verse 4, we read, we read that the, it's not the law which will save us, but it's Jesus who saves us. Romans 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He, he is the, the one who, who brings an end to the idea that you can save yourself, that you, by obeying God, can do enough to make your life right. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for, every, for everyone who believes. And so what are you called to do? You're called to believe, to stop trusting in your righteousness and put your trust in the righteousness, the goodness, the obedience, the perfection of Jesus. So that Paul will, will, in verse 9, make the argument, and perhaps this is the more familiar verse from this chapter. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you're saved not by your own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ. How do you receive that? By confessing the truth that Jesus is the Lord. He is God himself. He is the king of the universe. And that you believe that God has raised him from the dead. Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sins. God raised him to prove that your sins are forgiven. You have been made righteous. You have been declared to be holy. You were brought into relationship with God as his son and daughter. And what do we do? We're called to confess that Jesus is Lord. To believe that God raised him from the dead. And God gives us his salvation. Because the book of Ezra is reminding us that God is the one who provides. He gives his people all that they need. We know that because he, he ultimately gives us Jesus, but, but here in Ezra they have just glimpses of that, of the silver and gold that they're sent with by the king, of the provision of, 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 of all that they need to come and bring sacrifices in the temple of God. The end of chapter 7 provides us with the letter outlining what will be provided to them. Chapter 8 then shows the provision of God, the protection of God on their journey. But the decisive factor in the life of Ezra is the Word of God. Ezra chapters 7 and 8 point us to the power of God's Word to transform our lives. And so that when we finally hear Ezra's voice, we hear him as one who responds in praise. Ezra's name is given to the whole book because he probably compiled it and wrote it together, but, but there are only a few places where we have him writing here in the first person, where he says, I, or me. He, he describes God's work toward him. The first six chapters have been a historical description of God's work in generations before, but in, in Ezra chapter 7, verse 27, we hear Ezra's own voice. Look again at verse 7 of Ezra or verse 27 of Ezra, chapter 7. Verse 27, Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials, because the hand of the Lord my God was on me. I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. You see, Ezra, reflecting on the provision of God, gives thanks to God 
because God was with him. The hand of God was on him. He lifts his voice in praise. We're seven chapters in, 150 years into the story recounted in the book of Ezra. And finally, we hear his song of grateful delight, a song of praise. Now, if your voice was to interrupt the story of your life, if your voice was added to the words of Scripture, just hypothetically, what would it sound like? Would your voice sound like the voice of Ezra? Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers. Or would your voice be a voice of complaining? A voice of discouragement? If, if we got to hear finally from you, would yours be one of confusion? Or you just said, I, I don't know what's happening. Or would yours be a voice of praise? Because you have heard the word of the Lord You have seen Jesus fulfill the commands of God. You've confessed him to be your Lord and Savior, and so you see God's hand at work even in the difficult times, and so that when we hear your voice, it's a voice of praise. We need God's authoritative word. Because otherwise, if we're left to our own, we will make dreadful and dangerous decisions. But God is gracious and compassionate. His word shows us his grace and love. We need God's guidance. Sir Anthony Hopkins is a recognizable actor. He's an Academy Award winner with decades of film roles, but back in 1972, he was really at the dawn of his film career. He'd actually just fought with a director on stage and quit his role, his starring role in the, in the Shakespeare production of Macbeth. So his next part, Anthony Hopkins' next part, was to be in a movie based on the novel The Girl from from Petrovka. It's set in Moscow. It's a story about an American reporter who falls in love with a Russian ballerina. I've not seen the movie, so I don't recommend it. The reviews online look terrible. It's not one of his notable roles. But but Hopkins, having never read the book on which the, the movie was based, decided to, now that he's got free time on his hands, having quit his job, to look for a copy of the book. But he can't find it after checking several, several bookstores. And so he, he heads into the underground station to head home, and he notices there, sitting on a bench, somebody has left something there. It's a well-worn copy of the book he's been looking for. So he looks around and, and grabs the book, and he, he takes it home and begins to read. But he, but he realizes that the previous owner of the book has filled the book with extensive notes all through the margins. So these notes that along with the, the novel now help Hopkins better understand his upcoming role. And reviewers actually said that he was one of the, the only highlights of the film. Now when the filming began, Hopkins approached George Pfeiffer, the author of the novel who was there visiting the set. He took out the book that he found on the underground and begins to describe for the author of the book the, his encounter with it. He says, you, you won't even believe this story. Now, the author is surprised because he flips through the book, and it takes him only a moment to realize the notes written in the margins are his notes. He'd been given an advanced copy of the book several years before, lent it to a friend, and it had been lost. 
The copy is mine, he told the actor. See, Hopkins' performance had been shaped not only by the story itself, but by the author's notes written in the margins. See, but you and I don't need the crazy coincidence of finding a book left on the underground. If you want to understand the author's purpose for your life, if you want to understand what should I do next, if you want to understand what does it look like to follow after God, if you want to understand how to be saved, God has given you everything you need in his word. You have the author's story written for you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. Lord, for those that, that sit this morning with, with confusion over the claims that you make, Lord, I pray that they would be able to respond by faith, putting trust in Jesus, confessing him to be Lord. Father, we ask that you would give them faith now to believe, to trust in Jesus. Lord, for those of us who are disciples, who are followers, Lord, make us a people of your word. Lord, let us change patterns in our lives so we would be quick to turn to your word. Let us be people who are devoted to the study of your word. Lord, let us be people who are willing to apply its truth in our lives, even in, in difficulties. Lord, we ask that you would show us your grace, your mercy, and your power. We thank you for the hope of the gospel that Jesus, our Savior, lived a life of perfect obedience, that he kept the commands of your law, and that he willingly took our place on the cross. Lord, that he was our perfect priest, mediating for us. He was the perfect prophet, speaking truth. He was the perfect sacrifice, taking our sins and giving us his holiness. So, Father, I pray that we would be found righteous by putting our faith in Jesus. Lord, that we would see his death as the forgiveness of our sins. We would see his resurrection as our true and lasting hope. And so, Father in heaven, we come today giving praise to Jesus, praying in his name. Amen.